We have been considering over the past weeks the sacrament of Christian baptism under the following uh, headings. We looked at the uh, introductory confessional truths about baptism as is found in our own confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 28. I hope you've read that chapter and you've looked at it. If you haven't, please do so. We looked at the different modes of baptism. We looked at the proper subjects of baptism. And so today we'll come to the final in this little mini-series. And we're going to look at how to improve upon our baptism. Now, today's message has to be set in context of the past three messages. So you can't lift it out of context. So I want you to keep it within the context of the past three messages. It is a commentary, brethren and sisters, on the spiritual temperature of any church, be it local or denominational, when baptism is neglected. The confession states that neglect is a great sin. I, I don't want to understate anything, but I'm not overstating it. When the Bible describes it uh, in confessional uh, wording as a great sin. Now in the confession of faith as we've often said to you there's a great spiritual balance. Although it is a great sin to neglect deliberately, willfully neglect baptism. The confession also states that grace and salvation are not so inseparably connected to it so as the soul cannot be saved without it. We believe in Christian baptism, but there will be people in heaven who were not baptized. They never had an opportunity, perhaps saved on their deathbed, perhaps in locations where there's not an organized Christian church. There are many variations to that, but they'll be there. They'll be there. If they are regenerated by the Spirit of God, they're going to be there. It is often the case that baptism is connected with membership. And so therefore the neglect of baptism is connected with the neglect of church membership. It's striking how those two things go together. Because partial obedience does portray a heart that is unsubmitted to the sovereignty of Scripture. We like to sing those lovely hymns, Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. But there have been many Christians and they would be better singing, Lord, I want my own way. I don't really want your way. So these closing sections on baptism in the confession and in the catechisms, they, they remind us that the efficacy of baptism is not just tied to the moment of its administration. We believe baptism in the normal circumstances is only to be administered once unto any person. But the blessings that flow from it accompany that person right throughout the journey of life. So the larger catechism in its closing question and answer on baptism it raises something that is rarely mentioned. And it raises the question, how is our baptism to be improved 
by us? How is our baptism to be improved by us? We know that it is to be administered once. But does that mean you just forget about it? You put it there in the filing cabinet and you walk away from it. It doesn't mean anything to you throughout the rest of the journey. Is that how little that we esteem the sacrament of Christ and his church? Throughout our earthly sojourn and pilgrimage, it is something that is to be improved upon, not neglected. It is to be improved upon. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, I was listening to him a few weeks ago and he gave us this lovely analogy when he compared baptism to an engagement ring or to a wedding band. Uh, And the engagement ring, the wedding band, it provides the constant reminder of your status. Of your status. You're no longer single. You're betrothed to someone else. You're no longer single. You're now married to your husband or to your wife. This is a new relationship and baptism is just like that. It is a constant reminder of our new relationship with God. And we ought not to forget about it. So how do we improve upon baptism after we've been baptized? That's a good question, isn't it? How do we make baptism better? If you improve upon something, you're making it better. So how do we make it better? How do we make it clearer? How do we make it more spiritually significant to our hearts and to our lives? By improving it, it doesn't mean to say we have to redo it. Or redo it in a different way. I've known of some, and they were baptized. And then... Perhaps they went on a trip to Israel and they saw others been baptized and they said, well, we want to redo it again. Well, you know, the water that they were baptized with in Ireland is just as good as the water that was over in Jordan. We don't have to improve it by redoing it. But it's something that we're not to forget about. It is something that is to have significance in our lives. And we know it is a means of grace. So we're not limited to getting the benefit from it just to the moment of its administration. And when at baptismal services, it is good for Christians to be at baptismal services. And I I do not believe we should hate baptism away in some side service. I believe it should be there. People should be there to witness it. And you should be there to witness others being baptized. And when they're being baptized, you're meant to reflect upon your own baptism. You're meant to review all that God signifies and seals to you through that means of grace. It is wonderfully summarized by John Brown of Haddington in his systematic theology. I commend it all to you. He said, Baptism ought to be improved by such as have received it. One, by laboring to have just apprehensions of the nature, use, and ends of it. Two, by serious and deep uh, fixed remembrances of the mercies and vows represented by it. And three, by fulfilling the vows 
uh, therein made through an exercise of faith on Jesus Christ. John Brown literally just took a uh, question 167 out of the larger catechism and he just put it under three wonderful headings. I'm not John Brown, so I'm just going to go straight to the catechism with you. And we're going to look at it here. And uh, there, are, there are six ways that this catechism tells us how we can improve our baptism. And there's, I know we're breaking all the rules and putting so much text up on, on, a PowerPoint, on a PowerPoint presentation. But I'll try to simplify it as I go along. So first of all, we improve our, our baptism by a consideration, if we could put it like this, of the privileges signified and sealed to us in it. Baptism, as we have considered over the past weeks, is done with the design of signifying and sealing or engrafting into Christ or partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace. And the phrase that is generally used with reference to baptism is to baptize into. Baptize into. So the idea is always out of union with Christ. Our baptism ought to teach us about our union with Christ. My baptism reminds me, as I reflect on it, that I have been united by grace to him. One of the great proof texts that the Catechism provides is Romans chapter 6 and 3, from whence we read, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. Now we know from the like of Titus chapter 3 and 5, it also carries the signification of not only being a united in our union with Christ, but it also carries the signification of purification, of our souls being purified. Uh, Paul spoke to Titus in Titus 3 and verse 5 of the washing of regeneration. Not often Christians talk about the washing of regeneration under that baptismal metaphorical language. Baptism with water, it symbolizes, it signifies the baptism of regeneration, whereby the Spirit of God lays hold of individuals and the souls of individuals and washes them and brings them into new life through God's grace. And that's an important truth to meditate upon, even today. Water baptism... And it doesn't matter whether it's as a covenant child or as a believer, a believer as an adult. Water baptism does not bring us into the reality of that union with God through Christ. We sang in that lovely hymn just a minute or two ago, No trust in water do we place, tis but an outward sign. The great reality is grace, the fountain blood divine. There are people who could argue to uh, the end of the day all the different nuances of baptism. Unconverted people. And yet they themselves do not know what it is to have experienced that washing of regeneration by the Spirit of God. Now let me ask you again today. Do you know the change of regeneration of the new birth within your own heart and within your own life. All the rites of the church 
All the ordinances of the church can never do what the Spirit of God alone can do. You cannot make yourself to be born again. It's an impossibility. It is God the Holy Ghost who does the work in hearts and lives. But it produces fruits. And there are evidences of the soul that has been regenerated. Washed. The washing of regeneration. And of course this is what a baptism symbolizes. This opening clause reminds us not only of the signs and seals. But of the solemn vows made at baptism. As an adult. As an adult, solemn vows are made because you're confessing your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're confessing your allegiance to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Perhaps as a covenant child, those vows were made for you by your parents. And parents, you have a duty and responsibility then to explain those the significance of those solemn vows to your children as they grow up and as they come to learn and understand the significance of it. We should never grow tired of meditating upon God's covenant of grace. We, we read about it in the Catechism of, again. It's how justification is an act of God's free grace. Where people who believe in the free grace of God and it's that free grace of God that offers to you hope today, life eternal today. It offers to you pardon from all of your sins today. And nothing, nothing but the free grace of God can do that. And it is signified to us in baptism. The second truth that is taught to us here in the larger catechism to improve upon our baptism. We are humbled in as we, we meditate upon our own sinful defilement, our falling short, our walking contrary to our engagements yesterday. That's why I would encourage you to listen to those sermons yesterday. The Reverend Patterson, the Reverend Julian Patterson, preached a tremendous sermon here from Romans chapter 7 of the enemy within. There's a beast within all of our hearts, and it's called Adamic sin. And we're constantly reminded as we meditate upon our baptism and we improve upon it when we remind ourselves when we've fallen short of those vows and of those covenants. One of the proof texts that is given in the catechism is 1 Corinthians 1, 11 and 13. We thought about that just a few weeks ago, how there was division in the church at Corinth. And how there were cliques and, and schisms and, and people had aligned themselves around the various preachers. And some said, I am of Paul. And some said, I am of Paul. And some said, I am of Cephas. Some said, I am of Christ. And Paul addressed this. He said, were you baptized in the name of Paul? This is not how it ought to be. Baptized people ought not to be engaged in pointless controversies. That unnecessarily divide the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think we do have to address, as preachers, we do have to address the cult of the preacher. The cult of personality. It's who brings, it's not who brings God's message sometimes. Because the onus is not on the message, but it's on the messenger. 
It's the message you want to get. You want to get the message. Don't be involved in such pettiness. We were not baptized in the name of Paul. As baptized believers, we have been baptized into Christ. Again, those proof texts in Romans 6, 2 and 3 are given. Know ye not that so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized into his death. Dying with Jesus by death reckoned mine. We die to self. There's a lot of believers and they're very alive to self. But we are meant to die to self as we are in Christ, baptized into Christ. We have died to sin as he died for sin. And those who have been baptized cannot continue in sin. Believers in, in baptism, they profess to be dead to sin. And their baptism is an obligation on them to live unto righteousness. As adults, that is the, the simple application. As covenant children, the application is that those who rebel against the covenant become covenant breakers. It is an awful thing to receive the seal and sign of baptism as a child and then to become a covenant breaker for the rest of your life and to be held one day accountable before the throne of God that you've broken the covenant. Martin Luther, this great character of the, of the Protestant Reformation, he was often assailed by Satan. I read a tremendous uh, chapter by R.C. Sproul in the past week and he was discoursing upon the, the mental state of Martin Luther. Martin Luther was under such pressure at times it was as if his, his mental state was not in a state of equilibrium. And when Satan came to tempt him and when Satan came to assail him what did Luther often say? I am a baptised man. I have died in Christ to sin. I have been raised to newness of life. I cannot give in to those things. When Satan comes to assail you, do you ever think upon your baptism and what it signifies? I'm a baptized man. I was so challenged even in thinking of along those truths. His baptism had spiritual significance which was a help to him in facing uh, the, the great adversary of his soul. We'll come to this third one. The third uh, way in which we can improve our baptism is by spiritually maturing and growing in our assurance of salvation. I, I believe oftentimes when we talk about renewal in Christian life, do you know what renewal is? It just means we have that renewed assurance that I'm a child of God. It's as if God comes in mercy and he puts his arm round about us and he just reassures us, you are my child, I am your God. Is that not the covenant a formula of baptism? 
That's exactly what it is. It's just God reassuring us as his children. In 1 Peter 3 and 21, we read the like figure. These are the proof texts. Even unto baptism also uh, doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So the context of this verse in 1 Peter chapter 3, it is the, the story of Noah's uh, ark. And Noah's ark prefigured salvation. And the baptism of which Peter spoke was not the outward uh, ceremony of the washing with water, but rather he was speaking of the answer of a good conscience toward God. The resurrection of Christ which is spoken of, it presupposes the death of the Savior. And it's on his work that I rest my soul for all of God's eternity. Let's learn again that the mere external participation of baptism cannot save without the answer of a good conscience toward God. And what gives us a good conscience toward God? The guilt has been dealt with. I belong to him. It's not the water, it's what it signifies. The assurance that comes with it. Fourthly, we learn to improve our, upon our baptism by, by drawing strength from the death and resurrection of Christ. For the mortifying, it says, of sin, putting to death of sin and the quickening of grace. Mortifying sin, quickening grace. Those are terms that a are very rarely used amongst evangelical Christians today. Dying to sin, but living to God. Mortifying, putting to death sin. That's what yesterday's after, mid-afternoon message was all about. Mortifying sin, reckoning ourselves dead to sin. That the body of sin, Romans 6 and 6, may be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. If we have been baptized into his death and resurrection, we are also made partakers of his atoning work. So in baptism, God seals to us all of the promises of the covenant of grace. And the fruit of this is that we have been raised, as we have died in Christ, we have been raised with Christ. And we've been raised, brethren and sisters, to walk a new life. If you're not walking in the new life, it's because you haven't got it. You have to put on the new man. Sin has to be mortified. Grace has to be quickened. And we improve upon our baptism when we meditate therein. Colossians 2, 10 to 13 is another great proof text. It says, ye are complete in him. It's not wonderful to know today. You might think that you're all in bits here, there, and everywhere. But... In Christ, God brings all of those pieces together and we're complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised us from the dead. 
Matthew Henry has an enlargement on the Shorter Catechism. You can find it online. It's just a, a real blessing to read. So when he comes to this section, he said, Must we be careful to improve upon our baptism? Yes, be mindful always of his covenant. You're covenant people. Christians are covenant people. Do not forget the business of grace that God has wrought in your soul. Be mindful of the covenant. Is it a good argument against sin? Matthew Henry said. Yes. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? And for holiness? Yes. For we should walk in newness of life. By Romans 6 and 4. We are called to improve upon our baptism, not deteriorate. If we're walking in newness of life, we'll have holiness of life. Conformity to God's revealed will. Over the years I have seen uh, adult people and they get baptized and that's it. That's it, they go no further. They, they think they have done their part, they have done their bit. But we have to improve upon it. You have not to stay there where you were five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, whatever it is. You are to improve upon it and you are to make ground from it. You are either improving your baptism today or you are deteriorating. As God looks into your soul today, what does he see? Does he see deterioration or does he see improvement? Fifthly is the final slide. Uh, we improve our baptism by endeavouring to live by faith and to have our conversation, it says, on holiness and righteousness as those who have given up their names to Christ. We're called to live a life of faith. We're not promised. We're not promised certainties for tomorrow, but we're to live in faith for tomorrow. Whatever tomorrow holds in faith, we can face it with God. There's some of you perhaps will face things this week that you never, never even contemplated or dreamt upon in your life. But through faith in God's grace, you can face them. We're to have our conversation in holiness. The word conversation just doesn't simply mean how you talk. Of course, that is important. Our speech is very important. But it's how you live. It's your conduct. We've been baptized into the name, the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. One name, but three persons in the great triune Godhead. And we have given our name over. We have given our name over to him. And somebody said, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost. You're carrying that name for the rest of your life. And daily you're carrying that name wherever you go. A baptized person is someone who has the name of the triune God upon them. You're different. Holiness just simply means being set apart, been separated. You're different. You've been separated by God's grace in the world in which you live in. You're carrying that name. Carry it well, brethren and sisters, this week. Don't take that name into places where the Holy Son of God, where the Holy Spirit of God should never be named. This is all to do about consecration. This is how we improve upon our baptism. The final part 
that's mentioned in the larger catechism 167 is that we'll seek to walk in brotherly love with all those who are Christ's followers since we're all baptized into the one body by the same spirit. I think this is one of the greatest incentives. The greatest incentives to walk in brotherly love. This is how it's used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13 verse 25. For by one spirit we're all baptized into one body whether we be Jews or Gentiles. Jews or Gentiles. Slave or free. We're all one within the one body of Christ. We've all been made to drink of the one spirit because we are one. I've been reading in the past week of the Lord's work in Israel amongst the Jewish people. And it is wonderful to see, even though that veil is still across the eye of the Jewish nation, it is wonderful to see how God and grace is still calling out a people for himself. He's still working. Pray for all of those brave missionaries and national Jewish believers who are serving Christ in the land of Israel at this present time with all of the pressures that are mounted upon the land. But yet God is working in the Arab nations as well. And despite their political differences, despite their ethnic differences, despite even uh, the ongoing bloody conflict, Jew and Arab have been baptized into one body. And it's amazing to see how they strive to walk in brotherly love. You're baptized. How do you improve upon it? This last clause is so practical. We'll strive to walk in brotherly love with your brethren and sisters in the Lord. Don't major on the minors. Don't major on the minors. Look for Christ. Look for Christ in the heart of your brother or sister. Look for God's grace and rejoice in the work of God in the hearts of others. I know sometimes people can hone in on various little idiosyncrasies that we all have and congregations are very quick to tell the preacher about his idiosyncrasies. You have no call to tell me about mine. I, I, I know them. I'm reminded. I'm reminded of them constantly. But we all have them. But we're not to major upon them. We've been baptized into one body. And I think it's a wonderful sacrament even to contemplate and to understand how we deal in grace with differences amongst believers. Because even amongst our own believers there are differences. But how do we deal in grace upon subjects that divide us? We're in the one body. You may politically disagree with me, but we're in the one body of Christ. 
You might disagree with me and my eschatology, but we're in the one body. We're in the one body. We're baptized people. Baptism is not just an intellectual assent to a certain set of truths. It's much more than that. Some people could cut it right down the line. They just know exactly what they believe. And if you don't believe what they believe, you're wrong. That's not improving upon your baptism. Neither is it improving upon your walk with God because you've just cut off a whole swathe of the people of God who are baptized. The apostolic creed reminds us that we believe in the holy Catholic. A lot of our Protestant people bulk at that, but Catholic just means universal, <coughs> simple. We don't believe in the holy Roman Catholic Church, but we certainly believe in the holy Catholic or universal church and the communion of saints. Don't do anything as a baptized believer that will mar your communion with others. That's how you improve your baptism. Now at the end of this mini-series on baptism, I, I don't want you to be Pharisees. And I don't want to be an even bigger Pharisee by talking about baptism and spending all of this time looking at what the scripture teaches on baptism and not giving you an opportunity to do something about it. And so we're going to commence a new baptismal class, new members class, on Sunday, the 12th of November, and <clears throat> the only time really I can give to it, and it should be free for you, is 10.30 in the morning when the Sunday school is meeting, uh, we'll meet together, and I want to extend that to all. If you've never been baptized, you'd like to be baptized, well, we're going to look at the truths that lead up to that. Or if you've never become a member of the Church of Christ, and you want to know what really is it all about, well then come and join us on that class and we'll take it a step further. So that's Sunday the 12th, Sunday fortnight. And we look forward to welcoming those into our company and to all who are baptised, I would say to you, encourage, encourage especially the young. Encourage the young people. Lead them. You can't drive them, but lead them by God's grace and teach them how they can improve upon where they are.